Diamond, how are you doing? Jonathan Yee, I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm good, man. You know, school's rough, but what's new, man? <laughs> we are right. officially on week five, is it? Yeah, I think it's week five. Yeah, this week was, the, it wasn't, you know, it could be worse, but this is the week where like, I think the work is starting to set in. Yeah. And it's like before this week, I, I think I had a little bit of free time where I could like, you know, manage a little bit better but mm-hmm. i also just started going back to the gym and you know we're in our running competition as well so that's eating up some of my time you don't have to run you want to tell <laughs> them where the current running standing is? Well, I, I think you're like 12 miles ahead yeah i am 12 as of last night i am 12 miles ahead which is not a lot for johnny that's three days of running so i mean hey my teeth are still trying to heal up so i've been trying to take it easy but i think you I'll, should get another one pulled i, I might have to <laughs> Yeah, you might you might get 24 miles ahead, you know. I'll but. take it. <laughs> All right. So this bet is almost not worth it at this point. It's only for carne asada fries, for those of you that don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so and if you guys don't know what carne asada fries are, they're basically, you know, fries with what what is it? Sour cream, uh cheese, carne asada. Yeah, cheese guac. Hungry. Oh man, it's so good. But yeah. All right. So so we, we have a very special episode for you guys today. Um, Andrew, do you mind introducing us to what we're going to be talking about today? I'm pretty excited about this, actually. We do. We do have a, a pretty special episode. So uh, we are in February, and in honor of Black History Month, we thought it would only be right to talk celebrate, talk about some of the in, most influential and historic Black engineers that have been, you know, uh, involved in in making history in not only aerospace, but they do have some heavy heavy aerospace influence and ties mm-hmm. uh, but we want to just talk about you know some of the some of the great things that you know historic black figures have done for uh engineering um and and not only en- engineering but johnny i think you're going to be talking about a group of people today that are, are involved in in, fl- in flying right in pilots right. right exactly yeah so it's not necessarily engineering right but it's basically anyone that was really pivotal and really you know changed up I, I mean, in my case, it'd be the, you know, aerospace field in a very broad sense. But yeah, of course. Yeah. And 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 so the reason why we're, we're bringing this up, not only because it's Black History Month, but um, just in general, engineering specifically uh, is a is a is highly influenced or not influenced, but it most jobs in aerospace or in engineering, I'm sorry, are primarily white men. Um, I, I would say a high, I, I don't, we had a percentage, but I, we don't know. It, it's not exactly up to date. So, um, do you have that percentage on or you don't have it off the top of your head? I believe it was approximately at 1.70%. That was, it, it's a few years dated though. The, this data is antiquated, but the number may have budged a little bit, but the question is how much. So right. take that number with a grain of salt, but 70% is still pretty saturated towards white men. Right. Right. And, and so basically what we're trying to say is that minorities are typically underrepresented in STEM and engineering. And we wanted to talk about that. And, um, you know, me and Johnny don't particularly have a, a, a huge experience in this, but we do have a little bit of 
uh, you know, different experiences and where we grew up, because that does influence, you know, how you're exposed to STEM and engineering and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to talk about that. But, um, you know, anything that we could do to kind of help drive or, or to help lose that stigma that, you know, engineering is like a, a, a quote unquote, a white man's, you know, career, right? Because or STEM is a white man's career, because that's not true. That's that's just not true anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, and so as far as our experience goes, you know, uh, Johnny, I know I was telling you about it, but I grew up in there. Were, I grew up for a, a, a good portion of my life in a city that was majority Hispanic and, and black. And so um, while it didn't necessarily affect me firsthand, you know, I am Hispanic. So I, I you know, kind of just fit in, I guess you could say. Um, it did influence the, the education system around me. And specifically, one thing that we've talked about is that, you know, when I was in high school, there was no engineering classes, there was no, you know, robotics classes, not a lot of influence of STEM in the high school workspace. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, even when I got to community college, my community college wasn't highly influenced by, you know, STEM, Our, my school um, wasn't a predominantly engineering driven or focused community college, right? We have this community college that, you know, basically is pumping out transfer students to transfer into engineering schools. Right, right. My school was not one of that. Actually, my school had um, didn't have the best budget when it came down to STEM. Um, and our school focused primarily on trade jobs. So instead of having jobs like robot, or I'm sorry, uh, instead of having classes like robotics and CAD and, you know, you 3D printing printers and stuff like that, we had in our school, we had jobs that were like construction and shop, you know, and shop is really important, I think, but, um, and woodworking and stuff like that. So it, our school kind of prepared you in high school for, to go into a trade job because mm -hmm. they, you know, uh, the majority of, you know, uh, black and Hispanic workers go into, into trade jobs, right? And, wait, and, and sorry to barge in right now. And you're talking specifically about your high school right now. It's not right. even your university yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is my high school. I know I kind of jumped around, so I should have been more, been more clear, but yeah. So that was in, I, I was, that was the exposure in high school. Right. And so instead of, you know, being exposed to STEM as much as we could in, in high school, we're exposed to, you know, these trade jobs, which is, you know, it's like, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with trade jobs, right? We need trade jobs. Right. Um, but also there should be a balance where, you know, you're influencing STEM, but the problem comes down to, you know, funding, right? Not every right. school has the funding. And if you're in a city or a place that is typically, my, you know, minority um, or the, the majority is a mi mi minority, I'm sorry, um, the funding might not be there. And so that was high school. And then when I went to community college, my university also, or my JC there also didn't have that much funding because it was in the same city. Um, mm -hmm. We actually, my physics lab, I don't know how common this is, but I was told it wasn't. So take this with a grain of salt, but my physics lab actually shared the lab with the chemistry lab. So mm -hmm. we didn't have a dedicated, we didn't have like, you know, anything like a dedicated physics department and lab. Mm -hmm. And so my physics professor actually stored all the physics experiments in his own personal office. So his office was always a mess. Dang. Um, but that in, 
so that was the experience at community college. Um, so, and, and, you know, there's some schools around us, some community colleges around us at, and when I say around us, I mean, around CPP mm-hmm. that have a heavy influence of oh, yeah. engineering. They're engineering JCs, right? Like you, you basically, basically. if you're going there, you're going to be pumped out as an engineer or engineering transfer. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's not too hard to right? if that's your goal, but yes, right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's hear your experience. Cause I know it's a little bit different. Right. So I grew up in a relatively different environment. I want to say that for me, it was, um, I, I grew up, first of all, the demographic that I grew up under, um, mo- most of my school was predominantly white or Asian. Um, the city that I live in is, I mean, a lot of people think there are a lot of Koreans around and I totally agree. And I'm, I'm a Korean myself. So yeah, I'm Asian. And so therefore the school's obviously kind of geared towards that. And so even the junior highs in my area, there's a junior high that's actually really well known. And that junior high is like endorsed by Apple. And so all the students really? use Apple laptops and that, that it's not, you know, that's, that's not a problem. That's a good thing, but Apple laptops are quite pricey and most schools are struggling to get Chromebooks. And that's like, that's the thing that most students are getting now. Obviously, at the time, I hadn't either. Um, This is more of a new trend, but that just kind of shows the area that I I grew up in. And so in high school, for me, it was a very different experience. Of course, we had shop. We did not have woodworking, uh, but we did have a shop and we had other things like photography. But we also just recently at the time brought in an engineering building. I believe it was my junior year. My school got funding to create a new building and they decided we want to do one for science and they created an engineering building. And this was early on when 3D printing was starting to become big um, in the, I guess, normal consumer sense. And so uh, my school is a really early adopter in bringing in 3D printers. Um, we also had a, a small little wind tunnel. It was like a desk sized wind tunnel. And of course desk is subjective, but just imagine like maybe like probably like 60 inches long maybe, right? And a couple inches wide, but we had, we had a wind tunnel, we had 3d printers and stuff like that. The, the school district like poured millions of dollars into just creating this building. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was a pretty big deal, uh, but clearly a very different experience. And we even had a class for uh, aspiring engineers, which I actually happened to be a part of. I didn't take it very seriously because I was really bad at physics (laughs) at the time, but it was called mechatronics. And we had a really, you know, crazy teacher. He was crazy in a good way. Um, he was just absolutely like, you know, inspiring and he was in a different dimension in terms of his thought process, but you know, that's the way it is. And yeah, we had like a really good, I guess, experience and we could have, you know, gone and chosen engineering or STEM. Unlike, um, I want to say Andrew, where Andrew probably had a harder time doing that in high school. I definitely had that opportunity and not only that, but my district, the the district around me ended up picking up computer science relatively early. And I was lucky enough to be someone that ended up teaching in the district that I was once a part of as a student. And, you know, the the district that I I, I taught for became relatively well-known for their coding prowess. And so a lot of the students came out with a lot of coding knowledge. And so they're going into, uh, they're, they're going into high school and going into college having had a lot of exposure to STEM. And so um, a lot of them are going into STEM because of that. And that's, that, that's not something that every school, every high school, every junior high school has the opportunity to do. And so 
yeah, very, very different experience. And, and in university, my university, not university, sorry, my JC wasn't quite engineering focused, but um, I actually had a pretty, you know, similar experience to you. My, my JC was actually more Hispanic and black dominant. And there we did actually have chemistry and physics in the same lab as well. But um, I by no means was complaining. Um, we had basic classes like statics, and that's, that's all I was asking for. But as like Andrew was saying, um, our university right now, CPP, is an engineering behemoth. I think we actually have the biggest aerospace program in terms of student count in the nation. And then, I, I mean, that, that just kind of shows and tells, and I'm not trying to brag our school, uh, but that kind of shows and tells how much of an engineering school our university is, even though it's a Cal Tech or a Cal State university, it really is engineering driven. And there are other, you know, disciplines out there as well. And so it just, you can't help but notice that the other schools around the area are really en engineering driven as well. And so um, those schools definitely have an opportunity, which I didn't even have. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny you mentioned it. I didn't bring it up, but our school, um, well, so the JC that I went to was a one of three JCs that were tied together, but um, the other ones were, were far. Right. Um, and so my specific school did not have statics. Um, so I transferred to uni or to Cal Poly with no statics experience. Mm -hmm. And the only opportunity I had to take that class was I about 40 miles away from my house and 40 miles from a community college is far. Right. 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 Um, so I didn't get to, I took it at Cal Poly, which is fine. If you don't have statics transferring in, that's fine. I think you, Johnny mentioned it the other day. That's not typically normal. Mm -hmm. It's just, if you come from that school, but I also want to add on there. So I mentioned it, I think in the first episode that I actually went to a Cal state, uh, before I went to back to JC mm -hmm. and I went to Cal state Dominguez Hills and Cal state Dominguez Hills is a his, pretty much a historically, uh, Hispanic and black school. And it's located in Carson. For those of you that don't know where Carson is, Carson is located right next to Compton. So it's on the Carson-Compton border. And um, Cal State Dominguez Hills actually served as a safe space for Black and Hispanic uh, students and people when the LA riots was going on. Um, and that's the, the reason I bring up Cal State Dominguez Hills is because that school actually does not have uh, an engineering program because there was no funding for it. Um, right before I left the school, they're they are trying to sink their teeth more into STEM research. So they are uh, getting a new building that is primarily STEM driven. Um, I don't know if they're going to bring an engineering program on, because I'm sure you know that's a, a very hard and exorbitantly expensive process. But um, they are starting, you know, to, to get those resources now uh, down the road. But, you know, as we're seeing, you know, and this is not to discredit any other field, but STEM is, you know, going to drive the future, right? Um, so the, every university has to have some some kind of foot in STEM. So I'm sure that's the reason why they're they're trying to add that into their program. Um, but yeah, some schools just don't have that, you know, exposure exposure to it. And and if you don't go to a school with a, that exposure, that's fine. Uh, but we want to just kind of spread awareness around that, and you know, talk about that that's okay. And, you know, I mean, it's okay if you do get, don't get that exposure, but we, you know, ultimately that, that, that should change, right. We want that to change eventually at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So basically, we you know we're we're, we're spieling here just to kind of share the difference in experience that we had, and um, I, I guess to recognize folks that men and women in um, our area of interest in in STEM in engineering that really f fought some of these you know cultural obstacles or it could be literally literal obstacles whatever it is right to really get to the place that they are at and to have influenced modern society in in, in terms of stem and culturally uh, by you know fighting and really being the trailblazers so in honor of black history month and we know we're a little late to this but <laughs> we did start our podcast you know just this month so you guys have to give us some grace but we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll get we'll get around to it we'll, we'll we'll set up a schedule where we can try to do this um honor some you know some group or something of that sort um on a more timely basis but yeah basically yeah, and we want to share about that and we are recording it so you know you guys are getting this a little bit late but this was recorded <laughs> during black history month so that's the reason why you know we're yeah. late but we're not late so give us yeah. some credit okay all right yeah give us some so credit Johnny, guys you want to you want to start this off yeah yeah so i i wanted to start it off with so andrew and i both chose two people or people groups that um are historically we we consider you know we should honor them and they they were trailblazers in their own way historically, or they were you know they they have a lot of accolade and achievement, and so uh, the men that I wanted to choose in this in this case is a group of men, and they were the Tuskegee Airmen. Some of you guys may have heard of it, Andrew. Have you ever heard of Tuskegee the Tuskegee Airmen? I have not. I see. Yeah. So there's actually a movie out about them, but you know, the, the, I would say that you 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 have to be kind of in in the niche to kind of know about this, maybe either a world War two buff or, you know, have, have, you know, have researched into this, maybe in aerospace or into, if you're into airplanes, you might've heard of them, but they're basically world war two. Um, they were basically world war two pilots and they were a squadron of African-American pilots. And I don't know if you guys know this, but back, you know, in the day, I, I, I could say that because this is, you know, pre world war two, but men and like African men, um, African Americans in general were considered not smart enough to fly a plane. They thought that African American men, African American women, whoever did not have the mental capacity to be able to fly a plane. Um, you know, that's obviously not the case now. Why we, we, we could see that, and that was clearly not the case back then, but that was the public understanding of it. Um, for the US, I don't know how other nations were, but we're coming from a US centric kind of perspective because that's where we are, right? And men were basically r rallying that they wanted to be a part of the war as pilots. And this was in the, in the 1940s. And so during that time, our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, responded saying that they were going to soon train black pilots. That was pretty revolutionary. So, um, Andrew, I don't know if you knew all this stuff, but it's pretty important, right, to get right. everybody in on this. And at the time, the military was segregated. And so they, they, they segregated, for you guys that don't know, means a separation between um, races. And so segregation was only, you know, white people were a part of a certain squadron. And then, you know, there's only all black squadrons, right? And so the Tuskegee Airmen were all black. It was a segregated, you know, military. And so... They, they started training these men um, 
they brought in a bunch of men from around the nation that were African-American and they brought them to a designated training ground in Tuskegee, Alabama. Now Tuskegee is actually pretty notable for their university. Um, they have a, they, at the time it was an all black university um, created by a very um, well-known African-American Booker T. Washington, I believe this may be wrong actually, but I remember Booker T. Washington being African-American and <laughs> forgive me guys. Cause I, I, you know, my research is not as in depth, but basically a lot of young men were, were brought in and they were trained at Tuskegee and they became known as the 99th fighter group. And these were all African-American. Now they're obviously fighting a cultural understanding at this point of, you know, black folk can't fly planes. And so they were sent on a mission to North Africa and later to Sicily. This is world war II, right? And they were up against the Germans. This is their first mission, I believe. And they were given secondhand planes. They were called the P-40s. Now, you guys probably didn't hear of the P-40s, but there's a reason why, because they're not good planes. <laughs> they were a lot slower, and they were a lot more difficult to maneuver than the German planes that they were fighting against. And so they, they ended up with a poor performance. You know, This was one of their first missions, probably, and um, they were given not good planes. And so what ends up happening is when they come back from the mission, the commander of the entire fighter group complains about their performance, complains about the Tuskegee Airmen's performance. And the leader of the squadron of the 99th fighter group, sorry, uh, of, of the Tuskegee Airmen squadron, Benjamin O. Davis, he has to defend his men before the war department committee and saying, this isn't our fault. This is not the performance that we're, you know, we can, this is not the ceiling. This is merely the floor. This is the worst that we can do. And so he fights for, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen and basically they're like, fine. And then they get transferred to Italy in 1994. They, they end up fighting and they recorded 12 planes shot down in two days. And this basically proved that they're, you know, it wasn't their fault and that they have right. skill and they have talent. And so remember guys, culturally, you know, they're fighting this understanding that the whole nation thinks, you know, African-Americans cannot fly planes. And they're like, no, we can, we can definitely fly and not only fly, but we can actually do damage. And so they, they prove that. And so they, they end up staying in, in the campaign and they fight the war. And during this time, they end up combining with other groups and they end up combining with actually white pilots as well, which is pretty revolutionary in itself. And at this point, they're, they're kind of recognized. And so they're given P-51s. And now you guys have heard of this plane, I'm pretty sure. And if not, it's a pretty well-known plane in the aerospace industry. Um, it's and I'll, it's I'll, argued that, sorry for interrupting you, it's argued no, no. that the P-51 won the war for us. Yeah, it's it's considered an extremely efficient plane, extremely good at maneuvering. It's very different from the P-40. And so you guys have heard, if you guys haven't heard of the P-51, go give it a look. It's still fly today as a, not, not for fighting purposes by any means, but a lot of hobbyists own it. I believe Tom Cruise owns it. <laughs> but back on topic, uh, they were given, the Tuskegee Airmen were given the P-51s and they were told to escort heavy bombers. And basically these P P-51s had red marks on them. And this is how they got the nickname of the Red Tail. So the this fighter group had the name Red Tail on them because of their tail markings. And this is basically what the Tuskegee Airmen did. And, and they were well known for their escorting and how well they did. Now, myth has it. This is like a, you know, a local, I, I get not really a myth, a war myth has it that they never lost a bomber during their, you know, really? escort missions, but that's not true. Yeah. Oh, 200 okay. missions. Yeah. They lost approximately 25 bombers 
uh, out of 200 um, missions. And, 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 you know, you would imagine that each mission doesn't have one bomber, but multiple bombers. So that's a pretty good number. And, and if you guys are not impressed by that, you're like, that's still, you know, X amount of people per, per bomber that have, you know, potentially died or the bombers have, you know, been destroyed. Well, the average at the time for a, a, a normal group of fighters was 46 bombers going down for 200 missions. Wow. And so they were, you know, they were nearly, you know, they did nearly 50% better. Forgive my math. Something it's like that, enough. right? It's 50% or 100%. I don't it's know which one it is. Engineering right? math. Yeah. <laughs> we round up or round down exorbitantly. But yeah, so at the end of the day, you know, after they finished up, they ended up destroying 36 German planes in the air, 237 on the ground, 1,000 rail cars and transport vehicles. They destroyed a German destroyer, which I thought was really impressive. And um, six, six men were killed in action. Um, and then 32 men from the Tuskegee Airmen became prisoners of war. And so at the end of the day, you know, they, they were very influential. They ended up coming home after the war to a segregated nation where they weren't seen as equal parts to white men, white women, um, which is unfortunate. And, and you know, our, our nation is doing, I think, is, is trying to make amends in, you know, some, some form or some, some shape. But they, these men were really pivotal as a group in, the, in, in moving our nation towards the right, you know, path. And basically, they were a pretty big group in helping desegregate the U.S. military. And uh, President Truman basically passed an executive order in uh, 1948, not too far off after the war finished, because the war finished in 45. So three years afterwards, uh, there was an executive order passed desegregating the U.S. military. And so the Tuskegee Airmen did a really big, um, you know, they were a pretty big force in the desegregation and they really did prove a lot and shifted the mindset of the nation um, towards something better. So I, yeah. I really, I really want to, you know, honor respect, them. Yeah, and honor them exactly. Yeah, they did a lot, and I really appreciate what they've done um, because they are definitely trailblazers. And I may not be in the place I am without these kinds of men. Right. I, you know, I said I didn't know about the group because I've never heard specifically of Tuskegee Airmen, but I have heard about the Red Tails. And I think that's what the movie is called. Am I correct in saying that? I don't know. I watched it. I, I don't remember the title, but yeah, no, they're, they're probably known for being called the Red Tails. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely else. have heard that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, moving forward, uh, actually around the same time, and it actually is largely part in part due to the war. Um, so mm -hmm. obviously, you know, during World War II, the majority of people sent overseas were, were, were white men. Right. Right. As you were saying. Um, but because of that, the workforce began to deplete. And so this is moving into our next, um, I guess, honor, honor, honorable mentions, if that's what we should call them. Historical uh, figures, historical groups. groups. Right. Um, so the, the war was depleting the workforce in the United States. And so Basically, the U.S. government looked and said, okay, we need to do something about this because we're losing all of our men and all these people and these jobs that we need to support to basically, you know, to function as a society. So the solution was, um, and we're talking aerospace again here, so I'm specifically talking about NASA and NACA. So mm -hmm. this was before uh, 
NASA. This is NACA. So for those of you that don't know, NACA is the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which which would later go on to become NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so during the you know during the forties, all we had all these missing soldiers, soldiers killed in action, people prisoners of war, et cetera, et cetera. And because of this, the U.S. organization started to recruit uh, women and minorities uh, to offset the loss of, you know, men in these positions. And so this was essentially the birth of a group called the West Area Computers. Johnny, you've heard about them, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yes, I have. Most people should have by now because there's a movie based on them. The movie, we actually know the title for this one. It's called Hidden (laughs) Figures. Uh, It's a really great movie. It's super inspiring. Mm -hmm. It's like one of those movies that if you like Arrow, you need to see. Hidden Figures. Uh, What's the other one? October Sky. October Sky. That's the one with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. I always get it confused. I don't know if it's October or November, but I I know it's October because that's when Sputnik flew. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. We, that's like a whole nother episode. I actually, yeah. Anyways. So basically uh, because of this, uh, the West area computers was formed and, and basically what the West area computers was, was a group of computers. And when I say computers, I don't mean what you're thinking, like a computer with Ram and hardware. I'm thinking I'm, I'm talking about somebody that does calculations, computations. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was a group of female African-American computers that worked at NACA that were responsible for doing hand calculations that were involved in, you know, the missions leading up to basically the Apollo mission. And so they were, you know, calculating data, doing this all by hand, plotting graphs, you know, looking at all the the data from experiments that NASA and ECHO were running. um, And they were doing this all by hand. And, you know, let's just like that in and of itself is crazy because we have, we're taking a class called wind tunnel lab, right? Where we're doing uh, aerodynamic experiments online. And (laughs) we have to do all this, like we have to do all this data and we have MATLAB and Excel, but we were talking about this the other day. There's over 240 graphs involved in the, this one experiment, right? Mm-hmm. So just imagine if you had to do that by hand. Yeah. And- I mean, for us, it's a click and drag, right? Or pressing in some you know, buttons. But for them, they don't click and drag. They, right. they start with and box even- one. <laughs> they go down to box whatever, 200, 300, right? Yeah. And even that, like... The click and we're spoiled because the click and drag, it's like, oh, I have to do that. Like, what is that? I We're trying yeah. to figure out ways to automate it. So you just press one button and MATLAB does it all. But um, right. yeah, I couldn't imagine doing that by hand. I was actually, this is a sidetrack, but I did a project on the Concord, which is a whole nother episode. But I looked at their data. Um, so they were doing wind tunnel testing on the Concord, obviously. And I was looking at their data reduction and their data was printed on punch cards. Like, like you would punch in for a clock right, or, right. or like a, at work. That's how they and you had the data. The, yeah, exactly. It's insane. What a time to be alive. What, it's easier than ever to be in aerospace. I'm just kidding. I don't know about that. Um, but basically, so these West area computers uh, did all this work by hand. And like I said, it's a group of, uh, of strictly, black females that's all it was i'm Mm -hmm. sure there were some other minorities in there hispanics but um it was only it was only female only black um because nasa at the time was segregated um and so basically i i'm going to mention some of the three most influential figures which is the three people that are also 
talked about in the movie Hidden Figures. Um, and the reason is because they're probably the most notable. I'm, I'm, I'm sure all the women in the West Area Computers division were extremely important in, mm. you know, supporting all the missions, including the Apollo mission. Um, but these are the three that are probably the most well-known, but all of them should be celebrated mm-hmm. every day, not just Black History Month, right? Um, so first of all, we have Katherine Johnson. So she, this is really cool. And I thought when I watched the movie, because I watched this movie twice, um, I really appreciated it because I watched it just over winter break and we just finished with Orbital Mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Katherine Johnson was responsible for determining the math that was required to bring space vehicles back uh, to earth from orbit because at the time they had never done that before they Mm -hmm. had always been concerned with sending stuff up and that was fine but they never thought about how do we bring it back down Mm -hmm. and so she basically invented the math the math was there it was i i believe it was uh euler (laughs) euler of course yeah it's always euler right euler bernoulli you know it's always Gauss. the same, like 10 people um, that, that like, uh, anyways. Um, so basically what she did was she explored how we could, you know, bring back these space vehicles, because like I said, it was a problem coming back. And she determined that using these old equations and transformations that basically we could get a space vehicle back by doing X, Y, and Z. I don't know what it was, but basically she could be credited with um, pioneering orbital mechanics as for what we know it today that's crazy johnny you know that orbital mechanics absolutely with without orbitals you cannot do anything in space it's right yeah it's impossible to describe motion in space without it and so i i don't i'm if you guys don't know what orbital mechanics is basically orbital mechanics is the, the the determination and the description of a space vehicle orbiting a body um and you know it gets more complicated but that's pretty much the the the, right right the gist of it right like, like, i mean if if i want to go a little bit deeper and sorry sorry to cut you off but no you're good you're like, good. like you can determine flybys you could figure out dates um you can you know determine how much fuel needs to be used to go into a certain type of orbit right those are all different things that orbital mechanics you know kind of tackles but, yeah yeah without orbital mechanics you would not be listening to this podcast you would not have gps you would not have any of this because basically that is all from something flying around earth really thank you, fast Catherine johnson thank you Catherine johnson so she did figure this all out by uh by hand and my favorite story about this and it's actually depicted in the movie is that since she was known as one of the best computers and um later towards the as as nasa continued to grow and computer science became more pre- prevalent in aerospace and all engineering um, they started moving towards, you know, IBM, which is the International Business Machines Computers, because they want to do all their computations by hand. And what you, in the movie you see it, this scene play out, is that John Glenn is actually sitting on the launch pad, and he's about to go up, I think, in Friendship 7. And he basically calls in to NASA headquarters and he says, hey, are these calculations correct? Because I think it was one of the first times that they did calculations by computer. And they, NASA was like, we, we believe they are, but you know, we're, we, an error could have been made. So he says, go get the girl. And he's referring to Catherine Johnson and he wants her to verify the numbers. So what happens is they go 
get her from the segregated group, West Area Computing Group. Mm -hmm. They have her verify the numbers and they call in and she verifies them that they're correct. And uh -huh. the, the, the cool part, I, I mean, it's not cool that this happened, but, you know, launch and headquarters at the time was a segregated group. What happens is she thought she was going to get invited in, but they closed the door on her. But you see in the next scene that she gets invited in to see the, the to see the launch. Dang. So it works out, you know, it shouldn't have played that played out that way, but uh, you know, we're glad that she got to see it. And so Catherine Johnson has arguably paved the way for modern astro dynamics. Yeah. Let me, let me just, I mean, I, this is the thought that came into my head right when you were sharing this for us, when we're taking our tests, <laughs> we we double check these small number calculations like oh what's four plus three right and obviously those numbers you know you're, you're like oh it's seven right but then we double check on a calculator nasa did something different where they double checked with the person oh how right. the turntables right <laughs> like literally like imagine the the computing prowess and how much promise like you have behind your numbers like how perfect you have to be in order for NASA to trust you with that, right? That's that's just crazy. It just blows my mind. But sorry about that. Yeah, no, go. no, you're that's a great, you know, that brings up a great point. Could you imagine if if you wrote, you know, computer software, program, or code to calculate something and somebody come at, at today, if you did that today, and somebody came up with a different number, who would you trust, right? Like what right. what do you at that point, what do you believe? I'd be offended if someone was like, Hey, your code's wrong. I'm right. <laughs> like, um, excuse me. But, you know, <laughs> you know, that's that's the programmer and Johnny speaking and me, <laughs> me, if somebody said your code is wrong, I'd be like, you know, you might be right. <laughs> like, we got to double check my code. All right. For sure. For sure. But yeah. um, so, so let's move on to the second computer that we're going to talk about today. So these are all computers. Um, they worked in the same group, like I said, West Area Computers. Um, so then we have Dorothy Vaughn, who actually started off as a professor, pr professor, <laughs> prof <laughs> professor of mathematics. And what she did is she went to go work after that uh, West Area Computers group was uh, assigned. She went and managed and supervised the entire group. And the coolest part about her and what and the most significant is at the time when they started moving into IBM and, you know, computing power. They, at the time, the most popular language that's actually still very popular today is Fortran. You've heard of Fortran, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So it's also in the movie, uh, she sees that the computers are being integrated into this wing of NASA. And in order to stop from stop her job from being stolen out from under her, basically, she goes in on her free time to a library that is segregated the she wants it and she wants to get a book on fortran because she wants to learn the programming language but she was told by the librarian that the that type of book wouldn't be in her section so she actually went and she took the book she I, I, in the movie it's depicted that she stole the book i don't know how accurate it is but she in the movie stole the book and she learned fortran on her own and taught her entire department the West Area computers to learn the language that she taught them um, and advised them and basically said, Hey, if you don't learn this language, that's fine, but you will very likely be out of a job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was right. What happened was uh, NASA, you know, integrated and became more reliable, 
Fortran and IBM became more reliable. And so she actually became one of the people and managers of the actual computing division of NASA and taught a lot of people in her. She brought basically a, a large number of her, of her team with her. And like I said, Fortran is still used today. It was actually an interview question if I knew Fortran. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I, have, I have no exposure to Fortran at all. So that is Dorothy Vaughn. Right. And we have uh, the, the one of the last ones of the West computers that I'll talk about is Mary Jackson. She also started off as a professor of mathematics. So mm -hmm. at this time, um, becoming one, a female engineer was very, very hard. Mm -hmm. And two, becoming a black female engineer was, was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So the, a lot of these uh, figures that we're talking about, or I'm talking about, started off as mathematicians or physicists, because at the time it was a little bit easier, not easy, but easier than an engineer or easier to become a, phys a physicist or a mathematician than an engineer. Mm -hmm. So uh, she then transferred to the West Area Computers and she, after working there, doing some computations by hand, she actually got to work, transferred to work in the supersonic wind tunnel division, which was responsible for, yeah, really cool stuff, right? Basically what they were doing is they were trying to uh, verify and validate re-entry because, you know, you're going pretty fast on re-entry, right? Right, right. Um, she got to work under one of a, uh, a really historic engineer uh, in the wind tunnel. And basically he pushed her, said, hey, you should go to this, should enroll in this program that uh, you could become an engineer. You could, you know, get that title. And she, she said, you know, that would be really hard because one, I'm, I'm a woman and two, I'm black. But she pushed, they pushed for it. And in order to, for, to go to that program, you had to take an extra couple classes. And she had to go to this school and actually go to the uh, city board and basically oh. petition because the school was segregated and they didn't want her to take classes there. Uh, but she, she, she managed, she got the, the, she won the petition basically. And she went to the program and she got her engineering degree. And the same year that she completed her engineering degree, she co-authored her first paper. And the, the report is, is quite a mouthful, but it's called the effects of nose angle and Mach number on transition cones at supersonic speeds. Hmm. So that's intense stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the three computers that worked out of West Area computers that are, are very influential um, in, in NACA and NASA history. And I would say have paved, you know, our aerospace careers because without them, we'd be in a very different place, right? Right. It's not, it's not just because we're both minorities, right? Right. It's not just because we're minorities, but they've literally paved mm -hmm. aerospace itself. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. Yeah, with without them, the we the Apollo missions may never. I mean, it would happen eventually, but it wouldn't have been, you know, when it when it took place, right? Yeah, it, or it, it could I mean, be something could have gone awry. You know, there's right. a lot of things that could have been, you know, like the like the what ifs could have actually happened, right? Like, what if something goes wrong, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. Dang, I did not know about that. Thank you for sharing that, Andrew. Yeah. All right, so I guess I'm sharing my uh, second historical figure. Is that correct? Second historical figure. Yeah, so um, the second historical figure I'm going to be sharing, he is uh, 
he's still alive, <laughs> but he's he, he's made history. So and and some of you guys might actually know of him through what he's done, but you guys might not know his name. So this historical figure, his name is Lonnie Johnson. He is actually, oh, sorry, Andrew, you, you know Lonnie Johnson? I, I do, and I would argue that probably almost everybody listening to this has a part of Lonnie Johnson in their house or has had it at some oh, point. Yeah. Oh, potentially, because there's some stuff that I did not tell you, Andrew. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just go over Lonnie Johnson's, you know, early childhood, you know, like what, he, what you know, what he was like, because he, he is in aerospace as well. He's an engineer. Um, he worked actually for NASA JPL and also for the Air Force. But before that, let's kind of figure out what he was like. And maybe some of you guys are like this too, because I, I find myself kind of aligning with his childhood in a sense, to a certain extent. Um, so Lonnie Johnson was actually born in Mobile, Alabama in 1949. So, you know, he, he, he's in his seventies right now, I believe, or maybe he's about to hit his eighties soon. He's somewhere, somewhere in between the seventies and eighties. Right. But he was born in mobile Alabama and he grew up with a mother who finished high school and was a nurse's aide, but whose father was a world war II vet and did not finish high school. So, you know, he didn't grow up in, in, in a, a prestigious family necessarily, not saying that not finishing high school is not prestigious, but in terms of education wise, you know, his, his family didn't grow up with anybody coming out of college, but he did go, go to college eventually. But something that was really cool is his father um, had under, had understandings of electricity, like how electricity worked and, and taught Lonnie or Mr. Johnson, the basics of electricity. And I don't know what that necessarily means by basics. Um, I don't know if it's like, like Boltzmann or whatever. Ohm's law. <laughs> Ohm's law. Yes. I don't, I don't know what it was, but um you know, the basic understanding of electricity, probably how, you know, maybe you need a ground and then, you know, a red wire and stuff like that. Right. And Lonnie was really, really good with his hands. He was, he was a good tinkerer. And like, it got to the point where the kids in his neighborhood called him. This was his, his nickname. I wish I had this nickname. It's, it sounds really, really kind of cool and ominous in the same way. They called him the professor. It's a little kid. <laughs> they were like, Hey, yo, prophet. I don't know prof what i don't i don't know right but his nickname was the professor and like he was so good with his hands and he, he like he liked it you know he had a very curious mind and this is where maybe some of you guys may align with this um because this is how I, I work and function too he 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 was he wondered how his sister's doll closed its eyes when angled i don't know if you know what these dolls are but i've, I've seen these dolls sounds these terrifying it, it does sound terrifying right but he was wondering how it closed its eyes and so he tore it apart <laughs> He tore apart his sister's doll just to see the function behind how the eyes closed and opened. Um, so, you know, he, you know, he probably got in trouble for that. Right. And he also, he tried to, I, I've never done this. I haven't, I've never torn up a doll either, but I do take things apart. Right. But he, he tried to cook up rocket fuel in his kitchen, in his parents' <laughs> kitchen, and he ended up almost burning down the house. So you guys can kind of understand Lonnie comes from a place where curiosity really drives what he wants to do. Right. right. And he, he wants to understand how things work. And, and I, I find myself aligned with that, you know, a lot. And Absolutely. so, yeah, he's, he, you know, he, I, I feel like, you know, this may be, I don't know, I don't know, but I feel like this is kind of the way that, you know, engineering, the mentality is, I wouldn't say every engineer thinks like this, but I, I'd say this is a pretty good, you know, sign of, oh, like maybe Lonnie's meant for engineering, but yeah. So he, that's, that's kind of how his early childhood went. That's kind of who he was growing up. He ended up going to an all black school um, in Mobile, Alabama. It was Williamson High School. And one of his biggest inspirations 
another very notable black figure, George Washington Carver. He was a, an inventor, right? And that was Lonnie's inspiration, like one of his probably heroes. And some, some things that he did while he was, you know, in school, uh, pre-K to like 12th grade was he attended a science fair. And this is a pretty cool one. In 1968, I don't know what age he was, but I believe he was in high school at the time. And he created a robot in 1968 named Linux. Kind of sounds like Linux. And this robot was powered by compressed air and basically gave Lonnie Johnson, like it earned him first place at the science fair. He was the only African-American to be in attendance at that science fair. And he took first place. Yeah. I, I haven't created a robot yet and neither have I created one with uh, compressed air since I've never created a robot, but you can see that uh, Lonnie was really good with his hands. Um, and yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know. He's on a different level. I, I wish I was like him, you know, but yeah, that's what he did. And he ended up going to university at Tuskegee university. Wow. <laughs> we just said that name not too long ago. <laughs> and um, he obtained his bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering. And he went on to get his master's in nuclear engineering. So really, yeah, he, he's, he's padded on the resume, created a, created a robot out of compressed air. Uh, he cooked up rocket fuel. You know, he's got his bachelor's of science in mech E and his uh, master's in nuclear engineering uh, way ahead of us, but hopefully we'll get there some <laughs> point. Right. But yeah, I really padded. And he, he, he went into um, the air force. That was his first, you know, place that he worked at and he worked on the stealth bomber program. Um, I try to look into it, but uh, I'm assuming that he might have worked on the F-117 or the B-1, uh, maybe even the B-2, right? But these, you know, it's a, it's a way actually, I'm saying F as if that's what a bomber is. Sorry, guys, F stands for fighter. <laughs> um, he probably may have worked on the B-1 or maybe the B-2. But yeah, so he, he, he was, you know, pretty pivotal in that, working on that. And he also worked for NASA JPL, and he worked on some pretty important missions there the Galileo mission to Jupiter. He worked on the nuclear uh, power source for that, the Mariner Mark II, some Comet rendezvous, and then uh, the Saturn orbiter probe as well. So he worked on some notable missions there. And um, during this, he was also at home inventing things. And so this is kind of where, you know, it gets into the part that I really like about him. I mean, everything I, I hear about him so far makes me like him, but this part really resonates with my childhood. And, you know, this might really give it away, but he was a really good inventor and he was trying to invent at the time. This was when he was in the Air Force, um, working for the Air Force as a civilian. He was trying to create a new refrigeration system in his bathroom. And <laughs> yeah, this is how this is how hands hands on he was. But in the process, he ended up pressurizing a lot of water and it ended up spraying out. Like it was it was an extremely high pressure, like a water compressor you may think of today, but sprayed out with some decent velocity. And he was like, wow, this is really cool. And this is really fun maybe I should make it into a toy. And so he ended up presenting. Oh yeah. He, I mean, he ended up presenting it to Hasbro. You guys might've heard of Hasbro and he named it, coined it the power drencher. And it wasn't doing so hot for the first year, but then they renamed it. They did some changes. Um, he was like, Hey, you know, what you do is you just, you know, he was explaining it to Hasbro and it was like, you get a bottle, put water in it. You pump up, you know, you pump up this toy gun and it sprays water. And they were like, yeah, I like it. I like the idea. And they were like, let's rename it the Super Soaker. And so, you know, that's basically Lonnie Johnson is the inventor 
of the super soaker. And if you guys don't know what a super soaker is, it's basically summertime fun. You're missing out. I mean, yeah. yeah. Basically, you go out, you know, I don't know, outside, probably not indoors, right? Let's hope you're not indoors doing this. But on a hot day, and dare I say, even on a cold day, if you really want, you get you get this super soaker, you, you, you pump it full of water, and then you pump it full of air, and you compress that water, and you spray it at people, you know. So, the, you know, it's just a bunch of fun, right? And he's the inventor of it. And then later on down the road, this is a part. So I never owned a super soaker, but I do own something else that Lonnie Johnson created. And I'm pretty sure at a certain point you have also played with or um, owned this, Andrew. He he replaced the water in the toy with compressed air and he called it the pneumatic launcher for a toy projectile. Can you guess what he may have invented? Did he make the Nerf gun? <laughs> yeah, he made the oh Nerf my gun. God. <laughs> So um, if you guys don't know what a Nerf gun is, basically it's, you know, a foam tipped gun, right? Wait, I just, before we move on, (laughs) I just want to say, first of all, shout out to this man for inventing all these things that influenced our childhood, but he is not good with the naming convention of things, right? He, he, he might be good at inventing things, but naming might not be as strong. Well, 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 okay. He didn't name it the pneumatic launcher for a toy projectile. That was the patent title. (laughs) Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Sorry. I should have been more explicit with that, but yeah, he created the Nerf gun. It's crazy. So basically the super soaker, um, you know, changed up, reconfigured is the Nerf gun. And so, yeah, Lonnie Johnson definitely, you know, he, you could argue how how big of an impact he made on aerospace necessarily, and I'm pretty sure he did. With further research, I'd be able to you know attest to that. But he definitely played it uh, played into and impacted our childhood and the childhood Absolutely. of many many uh, other folks before us as well. And so at the end of the day, um, Lonnie Johnson still alive today. He um, is now working, I believe, on green energy. So renewable energy, converting heat into electricity, that's something that he's been, you know, tackling. And then on top of that, he also has his own company that he created in um, in 91 called the Johnson Research and Development Company. And so he's a company president, he owns a company, and he also holds more than 250 patents and received multiple awards across the Air Force and NASA JPL. And there was a quote out there saying that him and a very select few African Americans hold more than six percent, hold approximately six percent of, um, I guess, all U.S. patents. So that's a pretty wow. considerable number. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very you know, cool guy. I would not super mind talking to him. Super influential. Um, super, you know, I, I could relate to him to a certain extent, and he's he's definitely been through his own struggles as well you know, based off of where he grew up and stuff like that. But he came out, you know, punching and kicking and being, you know, the person he is today, giving us the Nerf gun and the super soaker. So yeah, I really appreciate him too. Yeah. Um, that's brings up such a random point, but like, we don't have to get into this, but do you ever think about if you met these people, what you would say to them? Oh man, dude. Ah, uh, I mean, it's not what I would say to them. How much time do I have with them? Yeah, I guess that's true too. But it's like, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But yeah. that's a whole nother can of right, worms, right? right? All right. Our last historical figure, um, not the least by any means. Um, it's another woman that I'm talking about. Her name Come is on. 
Johnny, you want to introduce her? Because you actually, you know, brought this idea up to me. Oh, I mean, Mae Jemison, right? Mae Jemison, right? Um, she is the first African-American woman to ever go into space aboard the uh, Endeavor space shuttle. So she grew up in the 60s um, and, and many, like many children of the time, you know, you grow up in the sixties, you're influenced, you're influenced by the space race to some degree, right? Like you're, right, that's right. your childhood, right? You're looking I mean, up at the stars. Are. <laughs> right. Exactly. And we weren't even around to see that. Yeah. But you know, you, you, if you grew up, look, watching the Apollo program, it's easy to, you know, say, that's what I want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, case in point, October sky, go watch that if you haven't seen it. So basically Mae Jemison um, was originally a doctor. Um, she was an engineer and doctor um, who had a pretty incredible career prior to NASA. She, as a doctor, she went to Cuba and led a, led a study for the American Medical Association. And she also went to, I believe it was Taiwan or Indonesia, mm-hmm. not entirely sure, um, but she went to go basically volunteer her time and, and work with people that were suffering there and, and you know, less fortunate people. Andrew, she was yes. a medical doctor and an engineer. She, she was a medical doctor, not yes. a, like a doctorate in engineering, but no, she was a, a medical. Yep. Wow. She does. She did bio and she also did, you know, so <laughs> her, her, I believe her engineering degree was medical bioengineering. I mean, it's engineering. Yeah, no, 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 no. It, it's crazy. It's engineering. It's actually, a. would even go on out on limb, say it's harder than arrow. engineering arrow, right? Oh, yeah. Cause it's I like, mean, it's the. In, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It's like you're incorporating engineering principles and practices into biology. It's incredibly yeah, hard. I, I try to avoid biology at all at all costs. Yeah. I try to avoid chemistry as well, but I, I can't imagine combining the idea of biology and engineering. It just blows my it hurts my mind to think about it. Yeah, it's on, insane. No, you're good. You're good. Uh so she, like many other uh people growing up during this time, women growing up during this time was one of the only black uh students in her class so she got you know got a lot of uh she she experienced a lot of discrimination got a lot of flack for it Mm -hmm. but she powered through it to become a doctor um and after helping out uh you know these people in these other countries she said i really want to go to space um and you know what 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 person doesn't want to go to space i mean there's some people that don't want to go to space (laughs) but um she she wanted to do it so she she i watched the video she called up nasa and over the phone, she just said, hey, I want an application to be an astronaut. And it let's just take a moment to think about that. NASA is the takes? only place. Okay. Yeah, NASA's, NASA is the only place you could call and ask that question. And you're not laughed at, right? Like, it's like, oh, okay, just sign, you know, fill out this paperwork. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, there's a process to it. Oh, yeah. But that's the only place that you could do that. Um, so she got selected. There was more than 2,000 candidates that Jeez. were or more than 2000 applicants that applied and she got selected. Um, So she actually went up and the Endeavor, I believe it was mission STS 57. um, And she is the only astronaut or I'm sorry, the first astronaut to hold the title of science mission specialist, because during this mission STS 57, one of the uh, experiments on board was a collaboration between America and Japan and they wanted, I don't, I don't know exactly what they needed to analyze, but I know it was some kind of biological life, like plant matter or something like that. 
And so she was basically put in charge of this mission um, because she had the experience needed to run this mission and run do, this experiment. Do you know if they had the space lab module on the Endeavor to do this? That, that, that's what, that was part of this mission. I see. I believe. Sure. Yeah. So it was one of, one of the, those missions that involved the space lab. Um, and, and the cool part about this is that when she went to space, she took some personal belongings that went to space or took some personal belongings. I can't talk today that she felt would represent, um, some people in some groups that are underrepresented. So she wow. belonged to a sorority that I don't, I forgot the name. Um, but it's basically the oldest sorority that represented, um, African-American female, I believe. Uh, she brought their flag with her. She bought, uh, brought some other memorabilia as well um, that represented. Go ahead. You have the name? Yeah. I'm, I'm the young Jamie here. Alpha Kappa Alpha. <laughs> Alpha, Alpha Kappa Alpha. Yeah. Um, that was the flag. It, what is the exact title? What, what are they known for? Uh, the nation's oldest black sorority. Okay. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So she brought their flag um, and she brought two other items that she felt really represented her and you know groups that she identified with so i think that's super cool mm -hmm. i know if i went to space i would definitely want to bring some stuff with me that LRL. just <laughs> i'm kidding go ahead just some stuff to you know just to be able to say and it like like hers is much more honorable obviously she's right. bringing it for a reason to represent a group much bigger than herself mm -hmm. but to be able to say that you brought stuff to space and you brought it back down. Come on. That's incredible, right? Oh yeah. So yeah, that, that's Mae Jemison. Uh, she no longer works for NASA, but she is a super influential, super historic black figure in aerospace. Mm -hmm. um, she only did the one mission, um, but you know, she had a great career before and after that she did work for NASA for quite some time after that. And you know, it, it's pretty incredible stuff what she did. Yeah. I, I believe. Um, so this is kind of bleeding outside of what we're talking about right now, but it relates. Um, Andrew and I are both Lego enthusiasts to a certain extent. Um, and there was a Lego set that came out and Lego does a space like theme and Mae Jemison is actually on there. So really, you know, yeah, she, she definitely is influential. I, I believe the Lego set is from Lego ideas. It's called women of um, NASA. So uh, they have computers on there. They have some very influential folk, but Mae Jemison is one of those, um, little mini figures on there as well. So she's for sure made a huge impact on aerospace, a huge impact towards NASA and yeah. um, the, the STEM field in general. Yeah, absolutely. And the, of course there's more, um, you know, I, I didn't get all the details. And when I say more, I mean more influential figures in his or history that, you know, are, are African-American. Um, I didn't get the name and I should have, but uh, CAD for those of you that don't know CAD is computer automated design or computer aided design I'm sorry was invented by an African African American male that I believe worked at Boeing and it looks like Johnny's looking up the name yeah Dr. Patrick Patrick Henratty and I believe he worked at Boeing right the father of um, CAD yeah let's see is he is he at Boeing uh uh it, it does. I mean, it's it, okay. Yeah, the, the particulars don't matter, but you're right. Like, engineering wouldn't be engineering without CAD, right? Oh, yeah. It's one of the most important tools that we use every day. 
So basically, you know, there's there's tons of other historic figures and, you know, they should be honored every day, not just during Black History Month or, or Women's History Month, whatever it is, you know, these minorities have gone through a lot to get to the positions that they were in. And, you know, uh, we're hopefully the STEM field continues to evolve and grow and, you know, incorporate these minorities more and more. Sorry, let me let me correct myself. Dr. Patrick Henretti is not African-American, but he still is a very cool guy. It's <laughs> yeah. good. good to good to correct yeah um yeah you have anything uh, we're not quite done yet johnny but do you have anything else to say no i mean it's just i'm, I'm always reminded and humbled of the the people that precede us i don't know if that's the right word people that came before us basically right yeah and and the trail that they've blazed to make it easier for me um i myself am asian and i know that the asian stereotype in engineering is quite common now but it wasn't the case at one point and the only reason that it came to the point that it is now is because other people came before me um, that were not Asian necessarily. Maybe, maybe some were Asian, right? <laughs> One of my professors is an old Asian engineer, um, very cool guy too. Uh, but basically, you know, the, these folks prior to me kind of trailblazed not only aerospace in general, but the whole nation to make it possible for me to be the place that I'm in today. And so I, I just want to honor those, those people like the people that we named today, the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, Mae Jemison, right? Catherine Johnson. These, these folks are all just very um, influential folk and, and people that need, I, I think are um, quite deserving of the respect and the honor that, you know, they may not be given or uh, may have not been given at the time, right? But now we can, looking in hindsight. So Absolutely. Yeah. And to follow up and the final point, the man, gentleman that's responsible for, you know, pretty much pioneering CAD. He was one of the critical members is Walt Braithwaite. I'm, I may be mispronouncing his name, but he did work at Boeing and he was actually named um, one of Boeing's president at some point. Thanks. Boeing's president. So yeah, like Johnny said, we honor all those that, you know, paved our, our paths in, in, in aerospace, not only because we are minorities, but, you know, just in general, aerospace and engineering would not be the same without them. For sure. Yeah. All right, Johnny. We do not have any questions today from any viewers, but I didn't tell you this. I'm going to ask you a question because I don't have any <laughs> beer to drink today because we're, we're recording this episode at nine in the morning. So oh, I geez, didn't think yeah. it would be a good idea. Good idea. Right. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and, and ask you a question. You could ask me the same question. Mm -hmm. What has been your easiest and hardest class in engineering in your personal experience? Oh, that's a loaded question. I think, I think every class has its own difficulties. And I need to preface this by saying that every individual is different. Some people are more inclined to be good at a certain class than others. So just because I say that a certain class is easy or hard does not mean um, that Andrew shares that same same sentiment, nor does Absolutely. it mean other other people out there in engineering or in aerospace are going to agree with me. Um, for all I know, my hard class could be someone else's easy class, right? right. So um, I mean, I I would want to say that my lab classes are relatively easy. But I think that's a gimmick. So I'm gonna, because because the lab classes are lab don't count. 
yeah, they're like history, like, oh, um, when did the Wright brothers do this and that? And I, I, don't, I don't remember anymore, like 1903, 1904, something like that, right? And what state was it? North Carolina. Okay. But like, that's not, I, I wouldn't consider that like an engineering course that we're considering. So that is a class, don't get me wrong. And, and if you're struggling in it, then, you know, that that is you, right? But I'm not going to count that because uh, I'm going to count more of the core classes. So we're talking from statics, dynamics. Um, would you consider calculus to be an engineering course or no? And physics? Um, only because we talked about, yeah, why not? Why not? Okay. Sure. All right. Um, I think the hardest, okay, I'll start with the easiest. I think the, oh man, dude, all of them are kind of hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man. Uh, I think the easiest class for me has to be the one that came to me the most naturally. I'm looking at my textbooks right now. Um, okay. Easy is probably the wrong word to use, but the one that makes the most sense to me. I uh, Again, easy is very subjective too, because it, it depends. Like, were the tests easy? Was the professor easy? Or was like, did the material come to you easily? Right. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like kind of going on a tangent here, but I would say, and I, I think Andrew, you might actually agree with this now that I'm, I'm thinking about it. I think it would have to be structures. And I, I have to credit Professor Co Dr. Coburn a lot for this. Um, the way that he teaches really does resonate with me and I understand it. And I by, by no means did perform to the extent that I should be able to call it easy. The professor, um, if you guys don't know Dr. Coburn, he's, 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 he's really good at teaching structures. Um, for you guys that, that, that don't know out there, um, I would recommend actually getting his book. It's on Amazon. but yeah. uh, I think it's Aerospace Strength Handbook, Volume 1. Yeah, very good book. Um, very good book for an introduction to structures. But that class has me extremely confident about my knowledge in aerospace structures on yes. a basic level. You can get really deep into it, right? Um, I, I probably don't know how to calculate a lot of other stuff, but I could probably, if, if someone gave me a structures question, a basic structures question, or you know, maybe not even basic, dare I say intermediate from my lack of understanding of aerospace, right? I might be able to pull out the handbook and be able to say, okay, let me do this. I, I got this question. And that's because of Dr. Coburn. He's just really, really good at, you know, teaching structures. And I, I understand that he thinks that it's a, he does a pretty good job too. He's very proud of the, you know, the content that he puts out there and the ability for students to understand his material. He's extremely proud of it from uh, my understanding. So that I would say is arguably with a, a you know, a bias, the easiest course I've had. I think the hardest has to be controls. Dang, dude. And I, I'm pretty sure you might agree too, because controls is it's um it's a very out there under like for me it's kind of out there. It's very different from the rest of aerospace. Um it has a lot to do with very complex equations. Um and I'm taking this course called aircraft uh, aircraft stability and controls, which is different from uh the basic foundational st stability controls. It's controls that, on steroids. It's controls on steroids. And I, I I joked around with Andrew, but I feel like I'm learning my ABCs and my Greek alphabet. <laughs> and then you sprinkle in a bit a bit of numbers and you know, like that's basically the class. They're like C M alpha L um gamma two five. I don't know, I don't know right? Like that's like basically all I hear <laughs> in the class. Um and I, I have to try to make sense of it. So it's so hard to the point I don't understand what hard is. Like I just don't comprehend. That's how hard that class is. <laughs> 
So, yeah, that's good. Um, that's a great response. Yeah. So Coburn with structures, I wouldn't say that class is easy, but I came away with a very good understanding of structures. Um, controls, extremely hard. So those that don't know, structures is also called stress analysis or right, right. mechanics and materials. I think it's also called mm -hmm. in some departments or schools. Um, but yeah, it's the just it's stress, basic stress. So that's mm -hmm. what our department calls it structures. Right. So Andrew, I, I feel like I have I, I want to I, I, dare I even make a bet that you might actually agree with me on both classes, but I will I will leave, you know the benefit, the doubt that you may actually have a different course, but how, so, how about you, man? So I will say that structures was probably the class. Uh, it's, it's not easy, but it was the class that I walked away with the most understanding. Um, and it's mm -hmm. probably the reason why I want to go into the field. Cause I do feel quite confident in, in mm -hmm. the material. And also it's really interesting to me. I I've read and still read structures books for fun. Like, I think that's super interesting. This guy's crazy. He reads textbooks for fun, guys. <laughs> you know, whatever. Judge me how you will. Um, but because because you said that, I'm not going to harp on structures anymore. I'm going to try to think of another class that was relatively easy for me. Um, but I will disagree with you for the hardest class i think the hardest class for me and also a class that other students would agree with and it's pretty much agreed with i think across all engineering disciplines not just aerospace right because it's heavily rooted in controls um or, or i'm sorry controls is heavily rooted in this is dynamics <laughs> right because everything comes from dynamics and engineering everything moves most things move um, so dynamics is the, is basically, you know, it's really funny too, cause you could boil dynamics down to basically one equation, which is F equals MA uh, and it's, law. it's still the hardest class I think I've ever taken. And granted really? I took it with, uh, somebody who I don't think did this subject justice. If somebody like Dr. Coburn was teaching the class or another great professor, like, um, maybe Dr. Nakjiri, it could potentially be a lot better. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, I didn't resonate with my professor. I didn't do too. I, I did good in the class, but my understanding in the class was not as strong as I would like it to be. So mm -hmm. I definitely think that that's the hardest class. And then it's one of those classes too, that is the building blocks of engineering, right? So you go into controls and you use dynamics principles, right? right. And it's like, or you go into vibrations and use dynamics principles. So it's like, it never escapes you. So you have no choice, but to get better. And that's right. one thing too. I think I've noticed this semester more than ever is that we're getting to that point in our educational careers that even the stuff that we were bad at, at this point, we it's so like it's repetition and we've experienced it so much that we're getting better at it. Right. I've noticed that a lot this semester. Mm -hmm. um, so that's definitely my hardest um, class. And I think most people would agree. It's one of those, like you mentioned the second episode, those weed out classes oh, yeah. where it's like dynamics you, is definitely weed out dynamics and statics is I think two of the most dropped classes that's why you typically get um, supplemental instructors in those classes. If you have mm -hmm. a dynamics or statics class and you have a supplemental instructor, take advantage of those uh, sessions because they're super helpful. Supplemental instructors are basically like student teachers, right? In a sense, like students that have done well and performed well in that class. 
and have um, basically been hired on to reinforce certain ideas at a separate class time, I guess, that's voluntary for you to attend. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's super helpful. Um, moving on to the easiest class, that is really hard. It um, is. Because, especially because now I'm trying to think of like, okay, what's the second easiest class that I've taken? And I might get some flack for this because we're still in the class right now. So it, uh, I think it, I know what you're going to say. It, it may get really intense. <laughs> um, but I would say that that's a toss up. No, no, no. I would say the second easiest class next to structures is probably gas dynamics. Oh, I did not expect that. Never mind. Okay, go on. You thought I was going to say thermal. I was. I thought you were going to say composites. Oh no! I thought. I think. I don't think composites is that easy. I mean, it. I guess. So composites is really like repetitive, and I guess maybe that takes away from the easiness of it or the level of ease. Um, Interesting. You but, can argue that repetition makes it easier. But it's so there's so many different scenarios and you're doing like it's one of those problems, especially because because like, OK, this is a discussion that me and Johnny had the other day when we're talking about a problem in like thermal, the scale, you know, we're talking about like the difference between me and Johnny were talking about the difference between zero and like five degrees, even though we weren't saying five degrees that's that, you know. If you're in between zero and five percent off of the answer, could be you know almost acceptable in some homework problems. I'm talking not in industry, not in a real application. Uh, depends, but okay. <laughs> but in composites, since the the you know you're working on such small scale, and like you know your laminate lamina thickness is like ten thousandths of an inch, twenty thousandths of an inch, the the percent error could stack up really quickly, even if you're pretty close. Mm -hmm. And so it throws you off. So I feel like I, I spend more time fiddling with composites than I do in like gas dynamics because in like, I don't know, I probably get a lot of crap for that because gas yeah. dynamics I'm sure is extremely difficult. Um, but I don't know right now at this point, it's kind of clicking with me. So I'd say that's the second easiest first would definitely be structures for sure. Yeah, that's pretty surprising. Gas dynamics, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I for sure, it, it's not the hardest, but I, I do consider it a certain level of difficulty to it. Would you but say yeah. it's easier than thermal? I might put them in the same realm. Maybe I put therm thermo a little bit higher, a little bit higher in terms of difficulty, but yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I think the concepts in, in thermal are a bit more non-intuitive i guess mm -hmm. yeah but they're also very closely related yeah but yeah that was that was good um again you could always send in questions if you guys don't send in questions we're just gonna make up our own so you know yeah if you guys like our questions then you know but if <laughs> you guys have your own too. questions go ahead and send it to us yeah where's it at andrew where do we send it to where do i send a question if i'm curious if you're curious and want to send a question send your questions to Araholics anonymous at podcast at gmail.com we check it quite frequently frequently and we'll you know try to give you our insight as yeah. as 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 the best as we can and since andrew mentioned our email we also have an instagram 
So That's right. I almost forgot. Airaholics Anonymous. Uh, we're we're going to try to make up frequent po- posts um, either when an episode goes up or, you know, when something happens in aerospace or engineering that we think is relatively cool. And since we've shared our social media, that must mean that we're at the end of our podcast. Is there anything else you want to add, Andrew? That's all I got for this episode. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. And how, how do we how do we close this out, Andrew? What do you say? <laughs> you always close this episode. All right. Out, we right? out. <laughs> We're out. Later, guys. See you. Bye. <laughs>